0: Well, we're, uh, we're at the start of a new series, and we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's letter, uh, the one that, uh, that we had read by Ali, uh, to the church in uh, Colossae, and we're going to uh, see some of the background to that letter today. That's uh, the purpose in my preaching. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that in your great mercy, uh, you have given us Uh, insight into your heart. We thank you, Father, that you've saved us and cleansed us. And we thank you for the beautiful testimony that uh, changed lives can be. We thank you for the story of Angeline that we watched before. And we thank you, Father, that not only in the Philippines, uh, but here in Oran Park, you are speaking into lives. Uh, You are forgiving us our sins and you are setting us on the path to glory. And, Father, we thank you for that. We ask today that through your Holy Spirit here with us, that you might challenge and change us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, when did you last write a letter? When did you last write a letter? Can I, can I get a hand up if you've written a physical letter with a pen and paper in the last year? Wow. Okay. Uh, keep your hand up if it was in, like, the last six months, the last two weeks... Oh my goodness, you people are amazing, Uh, hands down. Okay, Uh, has anyone sent an electronic uh, letter recently? Okay, you're very good, hands down. All right, well, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, It's great on Compassion Sunday, and Paul, it's wonderful to have you with us again, mate. Uh, It's great on Compassion Sunday to think about letter writing. Uh, That really is at the heart of uh, this whole process. Not just that we send money, but we engage in a relationship. And the way to do that is through letter writing. And so I've got a a, a letter up here from our sponsor, Child Jewel, um, who you saw on the screen with Carolyn um, a bit earlier, and uh, a letter that Ruby wrote to her, uh, my little girl uh, wrote to her. Now, why do we write letters? And, uh, And yes, you can send them by email now, can't you, Paul? In fact, I think I've done that uh, myself already a couple of times. But, but why write? When we write, it's so much more personal, isn't it? Um, I actually get to know something about what Jewel is like by looking at her handwriting. And I see the words that maybe she underlined or maybe she crossed out and she put another word in. But I, I get to know her in a way that just the cold words on a screen don't convey the same personal weight. Generally, if I'm going to write, I'm writing because there's something significant to communicate. Now, that's not always the case when we write to our sponsor kids. Uh, you might like to tell them any number of things and just share your life. But generally, if you're writing a letter, there are significant issues that you want to communicate. And what that means in practice is that they become incredibly more valuable. And um, when, we did our, when we did our visits in the Philippines, the kids would talk about uh, the letters that they received, and we saw the physical letters um, in the mail distribution room uh, in the head office in the Philippines, in uh, Manila. And it was pretty amazing, to be honest. Um, to see these pieces of communication that were going from one side of the world to the other, and then the treasure that they were to the kids. And uh, so, written words, incredibly valuable. And I've got to tell you guys, that's, that's what's happening with Paul. Paul is writing to a church in a place called Colossae. And that's the name of the city. And the people of the city are called Colossians. So when you look in your Bible and you see a book called Colossians, what we're doing is we're seeing a letter written to the people in that town who are called the Colossians. And so that, that's what we're going to be studying across the course of this term. And uh, I want to show you some, um, some context and setting for this letter uh, as we begin this, this series. Well, there's three important things I want to do to set up the worldview, how they think, uh, in this time. The first thing to note is a thing called the Roman Peace, uh, the Pax Romana. Uh, And what that meant was basically through the whole Mediterranean, around the the Mediterranean Sea, there was an agreement, basically forged through Roman military power, that this was one empire. And so that meant that they, there was peace across all of these areas with occasional flare-ups around the place that got utterly crushed by the Romans. Uh, now, what have the Romans ever done for us, you could ask, but they did provide a lot of benefits to the communities that they were in. And one of them was the roads. And the roads connected up parts of the empire that hadn't previously been connected before. And so uh, you could travel literally from Egypt the way around to Rome, which was a massive undertaking if you had wanted to. You've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome? Have you heard that before? It's because they actually did. Uh, All the roads would lead back to the heart of the empire, which was in Italy there, uh, the the, the capital of the empire in Rome. And so the Roman peace meant that there was a unified world and a unified language. And so it would mean that if Paul wrote in Greek there would be people all around the place who would be able to read and understand what it was that he had written. So first of all, it's a unified world that's occupied by Roman power. Uh, the second thing is to see that it's filled with regular pagans, uh, garden variety pagans. Now, does anyone know what that is, that gold thing up there? It's called a bulla, and uh, basically it's an uh, amulet for warding off spiritual Powers, And so if you're a child, you would be given a bulla and put around your neck. And you can actually look at carvings and pictures of ancient Rome. And you'll see these around the necks of children. You know, if we want our kids to be safe when we send them out, what do we do? We give them a mobile phone, right? Some of you do, okay? That, that's how we know that they're going to be safe, right? Here's the piece of... You're, you're covered by 3G, right? So you're going to be all right, okay? Now, for them, okay, you're covered by this little spiritual... Protection from all of the spiritual powers that pervade over the universe, so it's an aggressive um, and dangerous place. so there are spiritual powers in the end of the streets. there, there are omens in the chicken that we chopped up as to there's, we look at the sky and the phases of the moon and they tell us things about a big, dangerous, spirit-filled world, okay? And so at some level, it's a world that is held in fear of spiritual powers. Spiritual powers. And that is not the way we think, right? We think about economics. We think about news cycles. But but we don't think about a pervasive spiritual world that is dangerous. You can go to places in the world where they think that way, but that's not us typically. And so we need to know that to understand something about what it means to be in this time. Thirdly, in the area where we are looking and focusing, we actually see real prosperity. They're actually rich cities, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the cities around Colosse shortly. But they have worldly wealth, and what that meant was they probably had some free time to think and to pursue other other avenues of spirituality that might not have been open, might not have been open if you were more subsistence farming, living off the land. So these guys are in cities that are developed, and they have real wealth and real prosperity. So where exactly are we talking? So this is, this is the Mediterranean world. Um, and I want you to meet uh, Paul, who was brought up as Saul. That was his name that he was given when he was a child. Paul Saul, yes, it's confusing, but okay. So he was known as Saul of Tarsus, uh, which was... Uh, an important trading town um, in what's kind of modern Turkey today and because he was in this important town it meant that he was a Roman citizen and that gave him special rights and the ability to uh, to kind of travel and, and appeal to justice in various places so it was an esteemed thing not everybody was a Roman citizen but Saul was but the, the most important thing to know about Saul is not his Roman citizenship. It's that he travelled down to Jerusalem because he was a devout Jew. So he was a devout Jew. And he got trained under the best teachers in Israel and in Jerusalem. And he was trained as a Pharisee, which is the highest order of the most strict religious people of his day. And so this Roman citizen, educated with Greek understanding and highly devout Jewish man, he he's kind of a Renaissance man for this time. He, he understands the world in which he lives. I want to point out where Ephesus is, because that's going to be important to, uh, to our story. In the second reading we had from Neil, we heard about Paul's ministry in the town of Ephesus. And I want to put that on the map for you, because I'm going to take us over there uh, very soon. In Ephesus, Paul stays for a good period of time. And we're going to find that the Church of Colossae uh, is about 160 kilometers across to the east from Ephesus. Uh, it's about as far away as Goulburn is, if you're thinking in driving terms. Uh, so quite some way away. And, and then there's three cities, um, Herapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. And they're all kind of around next to each other. They're about 15K away, something like that from each other. So more or less South Camden, kind of that sort of far away. Okay? So close. And they had uh, interrelated um, trading relationships, and they were a a pretty prosperous area of this province of Asia. So let me tell you about these three cities. Uh, Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was a city that uh, had um, uh, hot springs around it, and uh, people would travel for the healing from the hot springs, and uh, they would be able to um, turn it into a a very wealthy town um, because of all the traffic that would come. Um, and it stayed on a trade route as well, and so it was, it was an incredibly rich city. It's actually mentioned in, um, in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, where it uh, G- uh, talks about the fact that they were lukewarm towards God, and I think it's a it's a pretty hilarious way to call them out, since they were famous for their hot springs. To talk about the fact that they were tepid water when it came towards uh, came towards their love towards Jesus, and so if you've ever heard the uh, the expression lukewarm, it basically comes from uh, from this passage um, in Revelation, which mentions the church in Laodicea. Uh, right next door to it uh, is a place called Heropolis. Um Herapolis is um, is on a hill. And it's a magnificent ruins. In fact, it probably has the most, the best preserved ancient amphitheatre in the whole of the world is in uh, is in Heropolis. And uh, again, it was a very rich city. Uh, they traded in cloth, and they grew. They had some of the most magnificent wool um, in uh, in that particular area. So, rich, a prosperous city. Uh, And interestingly enough, when it comes to Colossae, uh, Colossae is nothing striking. In fact, uh, if you go there today, you won't find any upright pillars, you won't find any ruins, um, because it's not been excavated from the time it was devastated by earthquake. And then I say that, and after the service, uh, Doug walks up to me and says, do you know that there's a Western Australian team that is going across, they've been working the last three years, and they're going to go and excavate Colossae. I said, I did not know that, but I'll tell everybody else today that that's going to happen. Um. It's really interesting. Colossae is actually not remarkable. Um, in fact, uh, one of the commentators I read uh, said that it's the least remarkable town that anyone ever wrote a letter to. Okay, but its its next door neighbours are rich and powerful and influential. Okay, and uh, it's it's really uh, it's really interesting to see how much smaller Colossae is. One of the other things that happened in this this little area, Asia, we've now got that in our minds from the map. Um, one of the uh, kings in Babylon had a bunch of Jews living there. And apparently what he did is he relocated 2,000 families, Jewish families, from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, all the way across into modern-day Turkey. And so by the time of Paul's writing, it's argued that there are roughly 50,000 Jews living in this area here, around these three cities. So where we would think it's just pagan, there's actually a huge Jewish influence in this part of the world. Quite remarkable. So uh, how how did the educated Jew become a person who would write a letter to a church? Well, you probably know the story of Paul's trip to Damascus, but it's worth saying again. Paul is going as a persecutor of the church. He hates the Christians because he believes that they're leading the Jewish religion astray. And on the road to Damascus, a light shines from heaven, and Paul, a good Jew, calls out, Who are you, Lord? Right? And the voice from heaven changes his life because the answer is, the answer from heaven is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Here this good Jew thought he was doing the right thing for God and he finds the voice from heaven is the head of the sect that he's been trying to stop. Jesus speaks to him and calls his life to account. And from that moment on, Paul will serve to it end of his days as a faithful servant of Jesus. So Jesus tells him, I am sending you to the Gentiles. Now, which is a radical thought. As a Jew, Paul would never have thought that the Gentiles were important. I mean, it's nice. At the end, some of them might be saved, but I don't want to do anything about it. I'm trying to faithfully follow God as a Pharisee. But now God has said to him, you know all these Gentiles that you've been ignoring? You are my chosen ambassador to take the good news to the rest of the world beyond Judaism. So how did Paul go? Well, he was a pretty strategic thinker. And so Paul's strategy was to go to key cities, where he would start off, as he tried to plant churches, by meeting the Jews first. He couldn't shake it, right? He would go into a town, and would go, where's the synagogue? I'm a Jew. I want to tell you that the hope you have is the Messiah, who is Jesus. And so Paul would start there, and he would stay there as long as they'd have him, until eventually a couple were converted or What often happened, they kicked him out. And then he would go to the Gentiles and he'd say, Hey, you know what? This message that the Jews have rejected is for you too. The one God of the universe sent his son to die for you. It's a radical claim in an environment where there were gods on every corner. The one God of the universe has died for you. And so Paul would preach that to the Gentiles and he would either stay until a church was established or, as often happened, he would get chased out of town by angry Jews who reckoned that he was leading everyone astray. From then on, Paul would pray fervently for the churches that he started and he would write letters to them to feed and encourage them. So if we think about Paul, the way that he planted these, uh, these churches was on uh, journeys around the Mediterranean. And uh, we talk about Paul's first, second and third missionary journeys. I'm sure you do that over supper on a regular basis. Okay, we don't, but, but he does. He travelled three times around uh, the, the ancient world. And if we look at his third journey here, we see it started in Antioch, got all the way across to Ephesus, and ultimately he ended up in Corinth before retracing his steps all the way back. Now, that'd be a great holiday. That'd be a great holiday. However, in the ancient world, this was an extraordinary amount of travel. Most people did not do this, but it was the love of Jesus that took Paul all the way around uh, the ancient Mediterranean, and an extraordinary commitment. Uh, this place is called Asia, um, this purple bit, uh, sorry this pink bit here. and we see we're going to see how the good news of Jesus got from this strategic key port, Ephesus, across the whole province. If we have a look uh, in that reading uh, that was brought to us from Acts chapter 19, uh, you hear these words. And I want you to see how Paul's pattern is explained here. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia Heard the word of the Lord. So you see where he starts? Starts in the synagogue. Where does he move to? The lecture hall. He goes up to the the, the lecture hall, which is a public place, and um, preaches Jesus there to the Gentiles. How long did he do that for? Well, it says he was three months in the synagogue and then two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So he's going there for quite a long time. What's the outcome? Well, in an extraordinary way, the outcome is, it says here, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. How amazing is that? And so over two plus years, maybe two and a half, maybe three years, Paul and others take the good news beyond Ephesus to all of Asia. Now that's going to be really important to us when we come to the letter of Colossae, uh, the letter to the uh, Colossians, sorry. Um, And the first thing we need to know about the letter to the Colossians is that Paul is probably writing from jail. We see this at the end of the book um, in chapter 4 verse 18. It says, "I Paul write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you." So Paul's in jail when he writes to the Colossians. He's in jail, we speculate, in Rome. Now that's a long way for a letter to come, but the church is on his heart, and so he writes to them. He writes, and we find out about a man called Epaphras It says here, you learned it, you learned it, the good news about Jesus. You learned the good news about Jesus from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Here's the little gem hidden in that. Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae. Somebody else did. His name's Epaphras. How did the good news get across all of Asia when Paul was based in Ephesus? Because people heard it and then took it back to where they lived. Ephesus was a trading town, so they'd hear it there and then take it back. And Epaphras had done this for the church in Colossae. And then we see that these three cities are related. Have a look at what it says in 4.16. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read uh, in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Isn't that cool? So Paul's writing a couple of letters... And uh, interestingly enough, can you find the, the letter to the Laodiceans in your Bible? No, you can't. I think that's extraordinary. That's the bigger city, that's the more powerful city. And the only way I can explain this is the letter from the Laodiceans went where? To the Colossians. And the letter to the Colossians went where? to the Laodiceans, and probably because they were the big important one, they preserved that one, and these guys maybe lost the letter to the Laodiceans. But there we are. These these cities are related together, and we see them even in the letter that Paul wrote. Now, Paul writes to them because there's a danger in the church. There's a danger for them, and it comes from the context that they're in. Have a look at the different vectors, the different attacks that are coming to this new tiny little church that's in Colossae. The first one is Jewish There's a Jewish attack. So it tells them that they need to be concerned about Sabbaths and circumcision and food laws. Say, hey, look, you started with Jesus, but God's plan started with the Jews. So we want you to become really good Jews as well as loving Jesus. So there's a Jewish attack. Uh, Then there's a pagan attack, which says, hey, there's all these spiritual powers Are you paying attention to the spiritual powers anymore? We've got some some philosophy that you need to kind of add in to help you live the right way as well as your Jesus. And then there's an attack from a bunch of people who are called ascetics, who believe in harsh treatment of the body. So how are you going to be living a holy life? Beat yourself up, rob yourself of food, get up early in the morning. No, uh, whatever it is, right? Okay, that you're, you're, you're treating yourself harshly and that's how you show yourself to be holy, that they're ascetics. And then there's a fourth line of attack, which is a bunch of mystery religions. Basically, the way that they worked was, we can tell you secret inside of things that only a special group know. And so there are a whole bunch of these mystery cults and they would talk about visions and angels and inside knowledge. And so if you're a real Christian, right? Make sure that you get the extra knowledge. Make sure you get the extra knowledge, not the stuff that's all publicly available. I've got some secrets for you. Come in with me. Now, all these attacks on this young church were basically telling them, Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You've heard that Jesus died on the cross for you. You've heard of his resurrection. You've heard that he's been lifted up to heaven. But you know what? If we could just add a few more things, you'll be okay. And, and as soon as we do that, Jesus plus something, we diminish Jesus. So Paul writes to this church, and I want you to see how he responds. These are some, uh, some ways that he responded to the attacks. And as we go through the series, I want you to see these things as we go through. Paul's first response is to exalt Jesus, to lift Jesus up again. Have a listen to what he says in Colossians 1, 17 to 19. He, Jesus... Is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So you go, Oh, this God's pretty important. No. Oh, this spirit's really important. No. Oh, this angel is really important. No. Paul goes out of his way to say, Jesus and him alone is supreme over everything. So the first thing Paul does is he sets the supremacy of Jesus in the hearts of the people. And I'm going to be challenged as we go through this series. Is our Jesus big enough? Right? Do we have a supreme Jesus? Just a nice, lovely man who's got some things that we might slip into our lives if we bother to. The second response that Paul says is no more secrets. He says, here's what I've got for you. I've got a public pathway to maturity. Have a listen to the way he speaks inclusively here. In chapter 1, verse 28, he says, He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Can you see how inclusive that is? Kids, slaves, slave masters, everybody gets the same knowledge. I want to mature all of you, he says. I'm challenged already as I've been preparing for this series to think about, do we long for maturity? It's one thing to be saved, woohoo! Are we as a church excited to say, I want you to grow into Christian maturity? Is that what we're on about? Paul was desperately concerned about that. The third thing he does, he says rituals are finished. You don't need to have Jesus plus rituals. He says in uh, chapter 2 verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul's saying, don't let all of the people who are religious around you drag you away from your relationship with Jesus. And so I want to ask us, do we reduce our relationship to a religion? I turned up. I gave some money. I served and I went home. I've been religious today or I expressed my love and my devotion to Jesus with the people of God. Are we reducing our re- a relationship into a religion? Fourthly, Paul says that the spirits are defeated. Now, this is a radical claim. Do you remember how scared they were? They, they live in a, a spirit-flooded world. There are angry spirits, that gods that need sacrifices. Did I sacrifice to this God? Did I sacrifice to... I, I'm not sure. What's What day of the week... It's full of fear. And he says this that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. You need not fear. That is a beautiful and game changing truth for a spirit soaked world. Are we superstitious and fatalistic still? Do we talk about being lucky? Do you talk about being lucky? Do you talk about having, uh, you know, well, what can I do anyway? Fate will decide. Boo. That is not the Christian worldview. And we are not fatalists and we are not lucky. We are under the sovereign, benevolent hand of God. And we need to reform our mindset. We see that Paul will talk about a resurrection morality. He's going to be very practical. He's going to tell us all this theology, but then he's going to tell us how to live. And he doesn't just say you should, he tells us why we should. Have a listen to this verse in chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. And then he says, here then is how you should live, because your mind is elsewhere, because Jesus is elsewhere. And I want to ask us, is our mind on heavenly things? I'll just check my text messages and get back to you. Yeah? I'll I'll update my status and see how many likes there are. Whatever it is. But is our mind set on heavenly things? We will be challenged about that as we read the book of Colossians. And uh, this last point I think is really important. Paul wants to have salvation-shaped homes. Have a listen to the way he speaks here. He says, in chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, he says, do not lie to each other. So it's so very practical, right? Don't lie to each other. And I could just say, don't lie. Well, that's great. But, but have a look into what he says next. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here, have a listen to this, here... There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What he says is a radical transformation has happened. You aren't divided Jew and Gentile. You aren't divided barbarian, Scythian. You aren't divided slave and free. You are, in fact, one community because of Jesus. How should you live if that's true? Master, you are not greater than your servant. Husband, you are not greater than your wife. Children, you are not of no value in this community. All one in Christ. It's an extraordinary, game-changing vision. And Paul's going to apply it, but he does it from a theological start. Do you see? And so he says, "I I think, we want to think, do we express our new humanity in church and beyond. In other words, do we cross cultures here? Are we one here in this building? Are we one at morning tea? Are we one in our homes? This letter will challenge us about that. And then lastly, we see that Paul wants to lift our vision up. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. In other words, what he wants to ask is, do we care beyond our corner? It's great being Compassion Sunday, because it takes us at least to Cebu. Um, and I think these beautiful kids, Paul, they're on the first video, are they from India? or are they Sri Lanka? Where are they from? Sri Lanka, because we're out of India, aren't we? Yeah, Compassion's not able to be there anymore. But beautiful Sri Lankan children. As I look at them, I think, man, what's happening in Sri Lanka? Terrible things have been happening for the church in Sri Lanka. The bombings that happened there, do you remember? Um, not so long ago. Do we care beyond our corner? Are we part of a global community that God is bringing to bear? Now, we want to think about these things as we go through the book of uh, the letter to the Colossians. And as we do that, I want to think about why it will challenge us. Okay, Paul is, t- Paul is speaking to a first culture, a pagan culture, that doesn't know our king, and doesn't know the benefits of the Christian community. He's in what we call a second culture. He's in a Christian culture. He understands Jesus, right? So he has the king and the kingdom. And so when he speaks, he speaks to the pagans and offers them a king and the goods of the kingdom. Where we are today in Oran Park, we have a third culture. We have a culture that is post-Christian. It wants all the goods of the kingdom, and it wants to reject the king, Yes? And so what we do in the first culture, you're incarnating the Word. You're trying to say, how do I take this knowledge of Jesus okay, and bring it to the pagan culture? How do I speak to them in their language? When when we go to our third culture, we're going, how do I respond to this angry world and try and make them like my king? Okay, That's hard, right? And it's a different job to what Paul was doing. Uh, When we're incarnating... Uh, when we're, we're taking this word and making it match up to the community that we're bringing it to, then we're looking for language, and maybe we're changing how we look, we're adapting it to make the truth understandable. So I take the truth about Jesus and try and find a way to apply it to a world that has a different understanding to me. The danger when we go from our culture to the third culture is that we can take our language and look, and it's influenced by the world and we abandon our truths in order to get a hearing from them. Do you see what I'm saying? So we go, oh, please listen to me. Oh, I know that sounds harsh to you, so I'm going to drop that away. I won't mention that, but I'm going to mention some of the good outcomes from Christianity. Do you see? And so that's our challenge. And so Paul writing to the Colossians is doing this uh, doing this adaption. And that's good. As we speak to our culture, we want to learn the lessons from Colossians and then think about how to do the hard work. The danger of going to the first culture is that you bring your culture and try to make them like us. So the worst outcome is um, missionary churches maybe in the islands where all the people now wear ties and go to church, right? Now, we wanted them to get Jesus, but they didn't need to get ties. Do you see? Are you with me? The danger when we go from our position to the third culture okay, is that they colonise us. We become more like the culture we're trying to, to reach and lose our Christian distinctives. Are you with me? And so we sell out essentially what it means to be the people of God in order to try and win a hearing. And guys, as we listen to Colossians, I want you to hear the challenge. We need to get the theology right. We need to see the heart of this. And I want to encourage you, the burden of this series is to live a life worthy of the Lord. Because that's how we're going to stand out in a third culture setting. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for the beautiful way that he wrote to this church to encourage them. Lord, as we watch the dangers and struggles that they have, help us to win the, the underpinnings, the foundation, so that we might speak to our culture better. Help us to lift Jesus up and to treasure maturity. And Father, not to be lost in rituals and religion. Father, change us through this series so that we do a better job of reaching our community. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.